Welcome to Patricia Raskin Positive Living, the program that brings you practical and inspiring principles for living more authentic, engaging, and passionate lives. Created by Patricia Raskin, a catalyst for positive change. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. And now, with Patricia Raskin Positive Living, here's your host, Patricia Raskin. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to Patricia Raskin Positive Living right here on Voice America, America's Voice. Today we are talking about a disease that uh, that really affects many people and many caregivers, and it's Alzheimer's. So if you're a caregiver for someone with Alzheimer's disease or dementia, you have a lot of responsibilities ranging from cook to nurse to housekeeper to chauffeur and more. While they aren't easy, these tasks, you know how to handle the appointments, you know how to take care of them. However, you need also to take care of yourself. And my guest is Natalie Rubenstein. Her book is Alzheimer's Disease and Other Dementias, The Caregiver's Complete Survival Guide. And Natalie Rubenstein is a licensed clinical social worker and a certified geriatric care manager specializing in Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. For 16 years, she was the primary caregiver for her mother, who was diagnosed with dementia. Natalie also worked for several years at the Wine Center of Mount Sinai Medical Hospital Center in Miami Beach, Florida. And she's a consultant for numerous assisted living facilities. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, yeah. My mother passed um, about four years ago. She had dementia. That's not why she passed, but... And my father just passed, not of that at all, but um, I have a friend whose mother is dealing with it right now as we speak, and I'm going to make sure that she sees your book. And uh, it's tough. It's tough for her. I remember how it was tough for me. I felt fortunate in that my mother always recognized me and her children, and that was always a saving grace. I, I was not in the position. You know, I was lucky that when I saw my mother, she knew who I was. And many times parents don't. So I think that's a gift in itself. Definitely. Yeah. So tell us some of the problems. I know there are so many problems like repeating yourself, toileting problems, refusing to bathe, wandering, paranoia, hallucination. Um, let's address, let's first talk about repeating because I think that's a common one where people just repeat themselves over and over and over. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think what happens is because for many people, it's the first sign that there's a problem. And once they get to the repetition stage, what's ending up happening is people are asking the same question over and over again because obviously they have short-term memory and they've forgotten. And as caregivers, it's really hard for us to understand that. And if anything, because the person looks so good and they look and they sound like they used to look and sound, we don't recognize that there's a problem. So we get this person repeating themselves, and it drives us crazy. And there's so many different ways of dealing with it. it it's really, it's, it's a, it depends a lot on people's personality, um, how they're going to deal with it properly. But we have to keep in mind as caregivers that it is just a stage, and eventually the person's no longer going to be that engaged or involved, and they're not going to be asking these questions over and over again. What's another common problem that you find? Well, incontinence is a big problem. Really? Why is that? 
Well, I think because nobody really ever thinks that they're going to be changing diapers or redirecting people to go to a bathroom when they're adults. We hear a lot about toilet training infants and, you know, different sleep, um, different urination problems while kids are sleeping as, you know, up to like even 11 and 12 years old sometimes. But when it comes to bladder control, we don't actually think of, you know, growing older with somebody in the golden years that we're going to actually be necessary to do these things. So I think for many family members, A, it comes as a shock. For partners, it, it's definitely, it changes the relationship because oftentimes you go more into a caregiving relationship than a sexual relationship. Yeah, and that's, that must be very difficult. What advice do you give to the caregiver? That's a good question. It it really depends upon what it is that we're going through at the time. There's so many different stages of this disorder, and different people will handle different stages differently. Um, If someone's having problems, depending upon their stage that that they're in at that moment, like, for example, the incontinence issue, um, what happens is, is realizing that it does change the relationship and validating with that person what this change means. And oftentimes people have fears and they think, well, you know, now that the loss of bladder and possibly bowels, now we're going to have to institutionalize the individual. And, and oftentimes that's not the case at all. So it's about exploring what these different behaviors means to the caregiver. Well, again, I think one of the things that's really wonderful about your book, Natalie, is that this is for the caregiver. Because many times it's not definitely it's about the patient, it's about the person with dementia and Alzheimer's, but the greater impact is upon the caregiver. And I'd like you to address ways for the caregiver to stay present but not to burn out because it's a tough one. That's most probably, it's so easy. I was just talking to somebody about this today and because we're doing this big caregiver show, and my comment really was that's like telling a caregiver that they need to slow it down, take care of themselves, is like telling a smoker they need to quit smoking. Uh, the reality is we know that we're supposed to slow it down and use respite services, attend support groups, go to therapy sessions, It's just very difficult. Once again, it depends upon the person. Can they get away? Is there somebody in the neighborhood or is there an agency that they feel they could trust that could come in and watch them? You know, as a caregiver yourself, you know, there's nothing worse than putting a stranger in your home to watch the person that you love. Mm. And then when you do go out, you're not going to feel comfortable. So, you know, these are all, it's, it's about learning how to be comfortable with outside help before you actually need to keep hiring in the outside help. It's about learning skills before you need them because for many of the caregivers that I see, um, they're in a crisis situation. And that's, that's, that's harder to control once the crisis has already occurred. Um, there's so many things that we could do to avoid those crises, not just with the person with memory loss, but also for the caregiver themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, as you're saying this, you're saying the caregiver needs to know what to do before they hire someone or bring someone in. Yes. That would be correct. It's it's not like hiring in a babysitter. You don't, you know, when we have older adults, it's not like we can just go to the park and watch how they're interacting with other people. 
So oftentimes what happens is is that we go through an agency or we hear from a friend of a friend that this would be a great or a wonderful person. And until we really know what to expect from an aide, we're not going to know what is a good aide or a bad aide for our situation. And just because somebody works beautifully with one type of client doesn't mean that the person that you're caring for is going to really hit it off with this person. Or, you know, maybe there's some aides that love working with people that are totally immobile, and there's other ones that really enjoy engaging a person in conversations or activities. So you need to find out when you're hiring the person in, what are, you know, what are their caregiving capabilities? Well, but now there's another another group too, and that those are the people that have their parents, their loved ones in assisted living. Do you think the burden is as great in that situation, Natalie? At times, it could it could actually be worse. Why? Because what happens is is that people don't realize when you first of all making a placement decision is a very difficult decision. Um, oftentimes society frowns about it, family members typically fight about it. it, it causes a lot of dissension within the family. And what ends up happening is once you place a person, people are under this misnomer that once placed you're no longer actively involved, and nothing can really be further from the truth. And when you think about the time and the energy that it takes to drive to one of these facilities, you're walking through the parking lot, you're walking through the facility, you're spending some time there. Um, if anything, I think it's more overwhelming for many of my clients. And you're still very actively involved because you're still checking to make sure that the care that, there's, that they're being given is good. You still want to make sure that all of their needs are being met and that their quality of life is good. And, you know, once you place a person, it's not like knowing that mom or dad is in the next room and you could just go in and check on them. I mean, you've really got to make plans to go to this facility. And oftentimes it's a misnomer that people, you know, get dumped in these facilities and none of the family members care and they just basically walk away from it. If anything, they go to these facilities on almost a daily basis to watch over their loved ones. Yeah, I'm finding that with my friend. She's there quite a bit, although she gets very, very good care. You know, why did you decide to go into this? Uh, I, I read in your book that your mother had dementia. Correct. But I basically I fell into it during an internship that I had been doing for my master's. And um, I, I loved it. I loved the center. I loved the facility. I loved the people. I loved what was um, helping people, especially with memory loss. And it's funny because at that time, I did not see myself as somebody who needed help. Yeah, and the reason I wrote the book was, you know, oftentimes when we do go to memory clinics or we do go to facilities, it, it's a crapshoot. You never know who you're going to get to help you out. And I say it in the book, basically, you know, there's great doctors out there, and they can give wonderful diagnoses, but what do you do once you have that diagnosis? And how's the family going to deal, and how's the family going to cope? And quite frankly, usually during that one-hour doctor visit, if you're fortunate enough to have access to a social worker, there's so many things that you need to cover. So I really thought it would be best if I put almost everything I could possibly think of within a book to give families the tools and guide that they're going to need to get them through this journey. Which, which is quite comprehensive. I mean, this book talks about um, getting an accurate diagnosis, medications, your perspective, communicating, coping with changes, dealing with unwanted behaviors, home safety, respite care. 
and lots and lots of fabulous resources at the end of the book. I think one of the things that I'd like to talk about next are the difficult behaviors that you have to deal with. What are some of them? And give us some tips. Okay. Um, difficult behaviors. Aggressiveness. Okay. That, that's a very difficult behavior for a lot of people. Um, it's, it's good for caregivers to understand that aggressiveness does not happen in a vacuum, that oftentimes there's triggers. And we as caregivers need to be very careful ourselves because we have to recall, you know, we have to keep in the back of my mind that a lot of the people that we're caring for now, their brain has changed. And they're going to have difficulty with memory, concentration, judgment, communication. And because of those things, they're not going to always have the best reaction. So aggressiveness is just, it's a fear-based reaction. Somebody's not getting their needs met and they're afraid that they're not going to get those needs met. Mm-hmm. And because of the communication problems that involve trying to calm down a person who's very, very upset is difficult to begin with. So as caregivers, we need to sit back and take a couple of steps backwards and say, well, what are the triggers that could possibly be causing this? Um, oftentimes, it's a spouse that's standing in front of a door, doesn't want their partner to go outside. Either it's dark, it's raining out, or it's just not a really good time. Uh, the person who wants to leave that house doesn't understand that. So when you start blocking that door, basically they go back into survival mode and they don't even recognize you as a spouse at that moment. All they know is you are the person who are standing in the way of getting what it is that they need. So what do you do? I mean, what if they start fighting or hitting? I mean, what do you do? That's very, actually, that's something that happens more times than not. As a caregiver, you need to be aware. Um, aggressiveness is something that happens, especially if somebody's having a communication problem or they're not feeling well. Um, taking a couple of steps backwards, first of all, you always have to protect yourself. And if you see that the person has aggressive tendencies or they've had aggressive tendencies in the past prior to actually being diagnosed with this disorder, that's a red flag for you that those situations can occur. And I don't know if you've been noticing in the news, Patricia, but there's been an awful lot of articles um, about individuals with memory loss who have, you know, unfortunately caused an early demise in their caregivers mm. and family mm. members. And yeah. it, it appears that it's rampant, but it's really not. It's just a fact. I don't think there's actually statistics out there. But well, there's so many stories. And, you know, families feel very fearful, you know, especially if dad was a big guy, police officer, was in the Marines. Um, the family does. And here's, have, and here's uh, my other story, my other question about that. My other question about that, Natalie, is that if you um, can't afford financially to either have a caregiver or to have uh, your loved one in an assisted living facility or in a memory care facility, and you're doing this by yourself, you know, that's that's even tougher. So how do you advise people in those situations? Well, it all depends upon where the person, the reason I'm going to say it like this, it all depends upon where the person lives. Um, different communities have different resources. So if we're talking about somebody who's doing it by themselves, which is a lot of my clients, we we go to respite. Um, day centers are fabulous, and but that depends. You have to live within a certain area in order for the person to be able to attend that center. Mm-hmm. So that's day centers are a wonderful um, respite. The other thing that I would suggest is contacting their local area of aging. Oftentimes, families will qualify for at least some assistance to have an aide come in for a couple of hours here and there. That's 
you know, that's, that's the first phone call we make. Depending upon the level of care that the person needs, hospice is a wonderful resource. Yes, yes. And, and um, I will say personally, I can attest to that because both my mother had hospice and my father recently uh, had hospice at the end. And I think that they are a very, very good resource and they really do understand. They do understand. Um, in this book, did you, was the purpose of writing this to really help the caregiver understand and move through this because this is um, so difficult? Well, I think that's a part of it. However, the other part is I think for many caregivers, this is a diagnosis where we feel that we're, our hands are tied. Um, we have absolutely no control over the situation. And since it's not something that's been around for hundreds of years and we know how to deal with things properly, oftentimes there's a huge role reversal with caregivers, and that's what keeps them stuck where they are. And so this book, what it does is it gives you back the courage and the power to know what to ask the doctors, where to go, what to do, how to do it. So actually it gives back the caregivers the control that they've lost due to this diagnosis. Since this show is is um, stressing positive living and looking at the obstacle or the opportunity in the obstacle and the solution in the problem, where is the silver lining here, you know, for those coping with this? Where is the hope, Natalie? I've heard from many people different things. Um, for many people, this has been, believe it or not, a diagnosis such as dementia has opened up their eyes to so many different aspects of their family and d- dimensions of the family. As for the hope, the only thing that we can really hope for right now is to help individuals get through this period of time. And there is hope. There's a lot of resources out there. The whole idea behind knowing where to go, though, and what to do and how to approach these properly, it makes a huge difference for the caregivers. There's there's so much support out there, and I can honestly say that, especially in the different areas. Granted, in some rural areas, it, it's, it's harder to come by. Um, but there are so many things that people, family members can do once they learn what it is that they're really looking for. And, you know, I talk to a lot of families about prematurely taking over things. So oftentimes what happens is the minute a person gets diagnosed, the whole family just rallies around, the you know, they take the wagons, they circle the person, and they prematurely start making plans where this person is still a very capable and viable individual. Mm. So before if we're talking about respite, I might say, well, are there are there neighbors that could come in and watch this person and you could actually pay that person? Because we know the economy's yes. bad right now. Yes. So there's a lot of neighbors that are more than happy to pick up an extra seven to ten dollars an hour just so you could get mm-hmm. out and run some errands, which is beneficial yep. to both of you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or sometimes you can even trade services. That's another thing. Oh yeah, uh, chartering and trading. The other question I had, Natalie, is that isn't it true that many times, I saw it in my case, people with dementia and Alzheimer's will remember the old, they have very short-term memory, so they don't remember, but they might be able to resonate to a song when they were young or to a picture when they were young or something that's kind of been embedded in their memory for years. 
Well, they are, there's an old expression that the, first, there's a, the two last things to go when somebody has memory problems is their name and the date of their birth. Mm. And that's because those are the things that we keep saying over and over and over again. So if you think about what a memory is, it's a recalled past. It's a recalled moment. And the good memories in life we replay over and over and over again. So some of the not-so-fabulous memories, you know, if it's something that causes a lot of anxiety and grief and heartache, we might replay those memories over and over and over again, too. So to go backwards in time, it's, it's no different than if you and I were driving down the street and all of a sudden, like, an oldie, an, a, a great old song from your high school years right. came on the radio. Right. Something in your book I think is really interesting it's a ch- in the chapter on communicating with a person who has dementia. And I want to read these briefly and have you explain them. There are 12 steps to better communication. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll just read the first part. Always focus your full attention on them and turn off radio or television. Use feelings instead of facts. So you have to listen to their feelings. Use a familiar name. Um, turn questions into answers. Don't ask a person if they have to go to the bathroom. Say, let's go to the bathroom. Don't quiz someone who has dementia. Ask them to do one thing at a time. Be careful how you speak. Um, because of their now limited vocabulary, you may have to say things differently. And be very specific. Use a gentle, relaxed tone. Treat people with dignity and respect. Keep your message short. And use touch. And definitely use a sense of humor. Very good. Why don't you comment on a couple of those? Okay. Um, oftentimes what happens is as we grow older, um, many of us, we go through name changes, either first name, last name. Uh, we explore. We discover things. And what happens is if somebody's been married a couple of times and you greet the person by their last name, and especially if it's a new last name, it's the most current one, they might not recognize who you're talking to. So that's number one. Um, I also found with my mother going back and saying, calling her Kathy, which was her childhood name, I actually got a response because when I would say mommy, she would look at me blankly. Mm. So often, so I changed that around. Um, keeping things short, really, really important. Remember, people have memory loss. They're not going to be able to recall the entire string of the conversation, all the words in a sentence. And these are things that we take for granted. So we chuck things down into smaller things. Instead of saying, Mom, after breakfast, you're going to take a shower, and then after the shower, we're going to go to the doctor's appointment. It's just like too many words, too much information. So instead, it's like, Mom, we're having breakfast. After breakfast, and Mom, let's go get dressed. After she gets dressed, Mom, we're going for a ride. We keep it simple. It's too much information. It's overstimulating. It's overwhelming. And oftentimes, that's the cause for difficult behavior. So, so again, yeah, I think um, I think one of the greatest challenges, and we said it at the beginning, I found it and I've seen it, is the impatience that the caregiver will often feel when they're asked the same question 25 times. And that's something that, you know, I had someone say to me, don't get angry, just answer it over and over again. What do you well, think? No, that's, I think that's excellent advice. I've heard from so many different people where when they get fed up, they start giving different answers. And quite frankly, I mean, if that helps the caregiver get through the day, that's a good thing because um, that's also like a number one goal. But but the reality is is that the person might have heard you and might have understood. They're just trying to reconfirm it again. 
And for mm-hmm. caregivers, they need to understand, you know, we're not trained to do this. We're not. And we miss steps constantly, and we're not really sure of how we're handling things properly. And that's why I feel very strongly about caregivers going and speaking and seeking professional help for a short period of time at least. Because you need to know that you're on the right track. It's it's no different than tutoring one of your kids in, in math or English or soccer or anything else that we used to do. And um, we need to... Go ahead. I was going to say, and, you know, because we are older, I think that we, we're smart enough to know that we don't always have the tools that we need. So at this stage of the game, it can make people's lives so much easier just by getting a couple of tricks or tips or things along those lines that can make a world of difference in the care that they're giving, not only to the person with memory loss, but also for their own personal quality of care. Yeah. I remember um, one of the things my friend, the one I'm telling you about, she will listen to this interview, but she was telling me when she goes to the assisted living, she'll comb her mother's hair and her mother really likes that. And she said that um, her mother is often afraid of the shower, that she has to actually almost go in the shower with her. There's something about the shower that makes her scared. Have you heard that? I would find out what, you know, I don't know how old your friend's mother is, but for anybody who has lived through World War II or seen movies of World War II or anything that has to do with World War II, we all know that going into the showers for many people meant they were going to die. Yes. It was the gas chamber. That's right. And, you know, when we talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, it doesn't mean that you had to actually witness it. It could have been anything that scared you. Maybe people around the family table were talking about it. Um, also, people slip in. We've all learned this from growing up with our parents. Um, you know, be careful in the shower. You don't slip. You don't fall. Uh, you know, the water's coming out of the wall. That's kind of scary for a person with memory loss because, remember, they might forget. You know, she might be too old that... Showers are something that are pretty much new inventions. I mean, bathtubs were around forever because you just filled up this huge big bucket and you put it on the kitchen floor Mm. from the tea kettle. But for many people, a shower is a relatively new invention. So here you've got this thing that you're enclosed in a wall and you've got this thing coming out from the top. That's kind of scary for people. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. The other thing that um, I noticed, and it was... She'll just walk around. She'll like to walk in a circle, like that repetitive motion. That would make sense to me. She says that that's very healing for her mom. Yes, it's very soothing. Also, rocking chairs are very good for that also. Um, For many people, they have a lot of anxiety, and that anxiety, they do a lot of what we call self-soothing techniques that for some of us, now you see for your friend, mom walking around isn't a problem for her. For other people that I know, that is a huge problem because the person will not sit down and they're constantly up. So you have to be up and walking after them to make sure that they're not getting into trouble. Yes, and and watching. Well, it's constant vigilance. And as adults, we're not used to that. It's not something that we're expecting. Now, when we have children, we read all these baby books and we see all these kids and we talk to all of these parents. And so we have a general idea of what to look forward to. However, when it comes to caring for a person with memory loss, there's even though there's the, the, the rates of memory loss are so high, 
what happens is it's not like a whole group of people who have successfully passed through to the you know survival mode of caregivers, and so people aren't out there really telling their stories, what to look for, how to look for it. There's there's no real support once you know I found out that we probably need more support groups. I think we need to have better run support groups. Okay. All right. I want people, oh, uh, we, we're just about at the close of the interview, so I would like you to tell people how they can find out about you and your book and your seminars. Do you do individual consultations? This is very important information, Natalie. Okay. Um, my website is called Alzheimer Care Consultants, and it's www.alzheimerscareconsultants.com. I do private therapy and consultations. We could either do it um, at my office in your home. I do a lot of home assessments or via Skype and phone. Okay, excellent. And, and it, you're in the Florida area? I'm in South Florida. So if somebody's in the Northeast or in the West Coast, they can call and talk to you and get a consultation over the phone? Does it work over yes, the phone? It works perfectly over the phone. Many of my clients live on the West Coast. They live in upstate New York. They live in Germany. I've got clients as far away as Germany and Hawaii. Okay. All right. Well, I really appreciate this. And again, you're, uh, let's give the website out one more time. Okay. It's www.alzheimerscareconsultants.com. All right. Thanks so much, very much, Natalie, for being on this well, program today. Me. Thank you. And stay on the line, please. Our guest has been Natalie Rubenstein, author of Alzheimer's Disease and Other Dementias, The Caregiver's Guide, Caregiver's Complete Guide to Survival Care. Remember, folks, stay healthy, stay happy, get the support you need, and know you can make your dreams come true. Write to me, Patricia at PatriciaRaskin.com. I'll send you a copy of my newsletter. Until next time, have a great week. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.